0: Okay, who'd like to venture an antonym for misogyny, please? Philogyny. Philoanthropy. Philandria. Hmm, Like a philanderer. Hmm. Feminist. I was hoping for a more kind of Greekly formed word, but feminist, I understand. See, you got several of them. It was a little radio thing I heard, a little interview, and, and people were saying, well, you know, misogynist. What's the opposite of misogynist? And the first one they came up was, was misanthropy, a man-hater. Then they came up with, well, they didn't come up with, but could have come up with misandry, that is, a male-hater, because misogyny's got to do with not so much human, it's got to do with woman as woman, so anthropy won't do, so you go for but there is a Miss Andry. But then you see, both of those, what they've taken up is, is to change the Ginny and leave the Miss. It was very interesting how people move from hating woman to hating man. Nobody came in with the other one until some time later when someone rang in and said, philanthropy. But of course, that's man, that's human lover. And then you come to philandry, which is kind of the male lover, but nobody came up with the one that you came up with first, phylogeny. That is a woman lover. Here is a word that's got five different antonyms to it, hasn't it? Actually, one of those is not really technically a Greek word, uh, an English word. All four of them are English words in your dictionary, but you won't find philandry in your dictionary because um, people don't know that I've invented it yet. But the word philanderer, <laughs> actually comes from that but of course a philanderer today means something very different doesn't it a philanderer today means a man who can't keep his pants on so you really are dealing with something very different it's an interesting little puzzle well let's turn to Titus chapter 2 Titus chapter 2 what is the good life Uh, there is outlines you have got an outline you haven't yes Model model Christians called what is the good life And if you bought a magazine called The Good Life, which is available regularly, of course, weekly here, what would you expect within it? What would be the content of The Good Life? Would it be about fashion, fitness, food, finance? Would it be about travel or real estate? Maybe about wines and fine dining, or maybe giving up the rat race and having a sea change, or growing your own vegetables, or eating out at a a vegetarian restaurant? what would be the content of the good life? Is it achievements? Is it acquisitions? Is it lifestyle? Is it relationships? Is it friendship? The Christian lifestyle and choice of what is good is very different to the non-Christian lifestyle. Now in the past that difference was hard to see because the whole of our society had been so influenced by Christianity that the non-Christians and the Christians kind of had the same value system of what was good and what was bad. But as our society moves further and further away from Christianity, the content of what we think the good life is compared to what the world thinks the good life is, is growing more and more apart and indeed should grow more and more apart because the good life comes out of your philosophy, your theology as to what you believe. Now the real difference between the Christian and the non-Christian understanding of the good life has always been not the content, but the basis of the good life. When we're in the day in which the content of the good life was much the same for Christian and non-Christian, it was very difficult for people to understand what was being Christian. But now that there is a much bigger difference between the two... People are confused because they think the difference is the content, but the real difference is the basis. Where do people get their idea of the good life? From conventions, from society, from family, from the ideas of the leaders of society, from the media, the newspaper, the television, from the advertising industry, from, from their own personality? Where do they make up what is the good life? The Christian basis of the good life has always been God and his word to us. For within the Bible we now find how our maker tells us to live and within the gospel of Jesus dying and rising again for us we find the motivation as well as the content of living for him. If you're ever in a debate with atheists, never move into the government. That God exists always move into the opposition side and insist that you argue something like that atheism is the good life. Because atheism is a profoundly negative view of life and therefore, firstly, they're always stronger in opposition than in government. It's, it's what you don't believe rather than what you do believe is atheism, so they're always stronger. In, so you, you're playing to them if you put them in opposition. But secondly, because it is a negative view of life, There is no good life in atheism. They can't come up with a good life. So make sure you always move into opposition and get them to tell you what the good life is. They don't know, but we know because we have God's word. Christians have three bases, three levels of arguments by which we know how to live as Christians. Number one is what God says. Number two is what is right. And number three is what works. And all three levels of argument we can use, any one of those three levels we can use, because they're all true. See, number one, what God says is the revelation of the Bible. God tells us adultery is the bad life, faithfulness is the good life. But the what is right is an intuition, that there is a just, there is a fair, there is a right way of operating, which is true because we have been created in God's image To rule the world under his authority, by his ways. And so humans know that there is the right. And thirdly, it all works because God has created a world which works. And so the argument of what works, it comes from utility. It comes from the doctrine of creation. Because we believe that God who speaks has created us in his image, we can argue from, that's the way to go because it'll work. That's the thing we should do because it's right. This is what we should do because God says it. Because God will say what is right and what works. And therefore we can have all three. But of course the non-Christian can't have all three because he hasn't got what God says, so that gets lost out. He still, because he's human, will say, but that's not fair, that's not just, that's the right way to go. Although that's an intuition, there's no argument, there's no basis in rationality for it. And so when he's argued to argue his case he will always move to utility because that's what he can argue about but of course utility is a very difficult area to argue. Now we see all three levels in Titus 2 1-10. to When you come to this passage telling us about the good life all three are there but we must be prepared to face a passage that is going to call upon us to be different different to our world because the content will be different as an outflowing of this basis. Now, before we look at the content, I want us to look at, uh, develop more this background of ethical discourse. This is not the kind of bit that I would put into the sermon that I preached here some months ago on this passage, but in ministry training and development, as people who are gonna try and explain the Bible to others, let me give you a bit of the background here, which is really important. See, the character of each of these three levels is so different. What God says looks to the past, is absolute, this is right, that is wrong, is relational, I've got to submit to God, I've got to trust God that he knows that he is God, and therefore is about my submission to God, and it's a theological discourse, whereas what is right looks to the present, what should you do now, is that right or is it wrong, is very powerful, because it is so moral. That is what it, it it touches people. You want people to do something, appeal to morality. That's not fair, that's not right, that's not just. It's good that they're the words that have terrific power in our society. That's why there is appeal all the time to discrimination and anti-discrimination. Because it's powerful and moral, but it's also intuitive. And actually the only way in which it can be argued is philosophically. You you move into Kant and and his categorical imperatives. That's the only place you can find this kind of argument. What works looks not to the past or the present, but to the future. It's the outcome based. So it's, it's how do we do harm minimization kind of arguments. Now it's arguable. If we do this, these will be the consequences. If we do that, those will be the consequences. Everyone who does this has this problem. Everyone who does that has this joy. Therefore, go this way rather than that. It's arguable, but it's amoral. There is no right and wrong. There's just outcomes that are preferable or not as preferable. It's without morality, though it's an empirical, scientific way of coming to discussions. Now, all of them have problems. The problem with what God says is it requires you to trust in God and to trust his word. And the problem with what God says is there's no community agreement about God and what he says. In another age, in another culture, in another time there was. Inside our church there is. Inside this group this morning, I presume, this afternoon now, I presume there is. But when you go out into the society at large and you say, well, God says you shouldn't do that, Well, it assumes the person believes in God and he accepts that God has said such a thing. And so without community agreement, you can't actually bring about communal ethical standards and values. The argument from what is right, well, its problem is it's not rational. So if it's not rational, where do you get what is right from? Well, of course, you get it from culture. That's where you get it from. It's a cultural habit. Is it right to eat horse? Is it right to eat dog? Well, one of our cultures here says, yeah, what's your problem? Another culture here says, well, that's well, revolting. No, we shouldn't allow that kind of thing to happen. But where do we get these ideas from? Well, it's our cultures. That's where that comes from. What's right, what's... It, it, intuition has this terrible problem that you can't force community agreement on anything. Is polygamy right or is it wrong? Is incest right? or is it wrong? Why? There's no argument in the end, it's just, well, of course it's wrong. Everybody knows it's wrong. You just don't do those things. Which, what the problem is though with what works is, it's all built on argument, but the arguments can't work. It's built on empiricism, but the empiricism won't work. You see, they do not know what works means. This is the best way to go, it will work. Okay, what does it mean when it works? What, make everybody happy? Why is happiness the ultimate goal to which we're going? What, what does it mean to work? And what will be the outcome? How do we know what the outcome will be if it hasn't happened already? How, how can you experiment on people to find out the best outcome? This group we're going to starve, this group we're going to feed, and let's see which group is happier afterwards. We can't experiment on people without crossing moral boundaries which give us big problems. In the con- and then we can't really do it with a proper control group. There's always no social experiment that is available to us where you can really get one group completely like the other group except in the thing that you're experimenting on. And furthermore, over what period of time do you evaluate the evidence? Here's one of the problems for the educationalists amongst us. Every educational experiment always works because the key element of an, experiment, of an educational experiment is the enthusiasm of the teacher. And the enthusiasm of teachers is always greater than the experimental thing you're looking at. But the trouble it means is, once the new experimental method is introduced into the education department, five, ten years down the track, no one's enthusiastic about it anymore, and it then fails. And so the thing that worked initially fails long term. What period of time are you going to allow the experiment to run on before you start to say well actually this doesn't work at all and furthermore what are you going to do about the unforeseen the collateral damage that takes place because that's what happens see we change the law on on brothels and we legalize brothels in Australia in New South Wales and all about you know protecting the prostitutes and a whole range of but, of course, people didn't see that once you legalise brothels, that means the back pages of the local throw newspaper are full of advertisements for prostitutes, that now it's going to be thrown into our face, that late-night television, you can't watch it without this pornography being thrown at you and the availability being pushed, because it's legal. If it's legal, you can't stop it, can you? And so... But when people legalise brothels, they didn't realise that actually it can now become part of the Department of Education's teaching programme. It's legal. So what grounds can the Department of Education refuse to teach children about things that are completely legal in our society? There are consequences that people don't realise, don't think about. And then of course, some of the things is you can't do the reverse. I mean, Canberra, against the advice and the wish of every state of Australia, allowed pornography. It is now the pornography capital of our land that's very suitable it is our capital our national capital and this is the nature culture we have all the pornography of australia is is actually established in canberra it is impossible to put the cork back into the experiment is it i mean it's out there now there's no way you can undo what has been done so what works doesn't work now we use each of these arguments and we can use each of these arguments Christians know that all three can work together because God has created us in his image what God says is right and will work the non-Christians who do not know what God says can't help thinking morally but they don't have a basis for it and so they then try and think Rationally, but they don't wind up with morality. And so, what the non-Christian winds up with is irrational morality, or rational amorality. They miss out both ways. Now, you see this in the uh, uh, in lots of places. Um, Professor Joel Marks uh, from uh, Connecticut in America uh, is a great atheist. Moralist who's been arguing against utilitarianism for 30 or so years, he writes in a magazine called Philosophy Now, and late last year, or was it the year before, he announced his conversion. Utilitarianism is still wrong, but he came to the conclusion that morality is also wrong because there's no intellectual basis for it. And he wrote, My shocking epiphany was, is that the religious fundamentalists are correct. Without God... There is no morality. It's a staggering statement for an atheist, isn't it? So what's his solution? Turn to God. No. Live amorally is his solution. I've written it up in one of my From the Dean articles. We've got a big pile of them here and we'll give them to you later on. Don't want to give them to you now because I'd rather you read them over lunch rather than while I'm talking to you. But it's written up this because it's a fundamental issue and argument argument It's a good thing. I don't need that at all. No, it's just an irritant, isn't it? But you're going to look after the handing out of these two. It's a fundamental argument we need to have. It's a really helpful way of showing our friends the atheists do not have it all their way. The atheists themselves can see that it doesn't work. Now, I've written of utilitarianism's failure, in the introductory essay of this little book called prodigal worlds there are only four copies for sale left in the world anywhere and after lunch they're going to be on sale in our bookshop so you could get them otherwise you can buy it as an e-book right and it's a, a, a the introductory chapter is about the problem and the problem is the turning of the world to utilitarianism has turned the world to stupidity And then there's a series of other essays demonstrating the stupidity that flows out of having turned to utilitarianism. I don't know where else you can get a book that does it. It's not brilliant, but if it's the only one in the field, it's the best that's going. Doesn't say much, does it? If you mark on the curve, make sure you hang around with really dumb people. So let's come to Titus 2. And here we see all three levels of arguments as we read the model Christian. Just as we've seen in chapter 1, the model leaders are contrasted to the false leaders, so we now see the model Christians, or how Titus was to teach the Cretan Christians to live. For notice what Titus was to do. Firstly, he was to, verse 1, teach, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Not just teach anything, he was to teach sound, healthy doctrine. And not just the sound doctrine, he was to teach what accords with that doctrine. What is fitting, prepo, what accords with it is appropriate for people who believe in the word of God. Secondly, he was to show or to model in verse 7, to present himself as a type, as as a model, as a tupos in all things, peripanta, all things of good works. He is to be the model of good, of every good work. And so he he is going to show how to live as a young man. That's what he is to Paul, a young man. And so we read in verse 7, show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Christianity is not just taught, it's not just lived it's also modelled so people may understand and that so people may not be able to condemn. Thirdly Uh, He is to declare these things with all authority. Look down to the end of the chapter, verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He's to speak these things. Laleo He's to say these things. But he's to say them with exhortation and with rebuking and with all authority. And he's not to back down. Let no one disregard you. Let no one despise you. Remembering what the Cretans are like lazy gluttons and the rest. That is, these things in 2, 1 to 10 are not optional extra for the zealous Christian. This is what the Cretan Christians needed to hear because it was in accordance with sound doctrine, because it was the model of good works, and because it is the way to live to this very day. The form in which the content is organised is what we call the household code, You find similar ones in Ephesians, Colossians 1, Peter, of course. It thinks through the lifestyle of people in place of their, their relationships. Older, younger, men, women, children, parents, slaves, master, and so on, which is the Christian way to think. We don't deal with persons as persons. We deal with persons in relationships. Uh, you might flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 5, where you're at that very important little verse for ministers to grasp hold of. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. That is, you don't treat a person as a person. You treat them as older than you or as younger than you, as male or as female. You treat them in their culture as their differences that they have. And throughout the Bible, you can glean information about women, but almost none about men. If you want to do a Bible study on men, you have to look up sons, brothers, husbands, fathers. And then you'll find out what the Bible's view of men is. But it's interesting, you see, the way in which you understand what a man is, is you look at him in his relationships. For that is what humans are, people in relationship with God and with each other. Here in Titus 5, then the groups are addressed to older men, verse 2, older women, verse 3, younger women, 4 and 5, indirectly through the older women, younger men in verse 6 and through Titus in verses 7 and 8, and then slaves in verses 9 to 10. I take them in turn. Firstly, then older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love and steadfastness. These are not the elders, the ones to be appointed. It's a slightly different word it's not presbyter, uh, my text has now destroyed my, uh, I printed out, I wrote it on one computer which actually can print the Greek and I've printed in one of these ones that won't print the Greek on me so I get a little lost. Um, but the word here presbyteras as opposed to presbyteros, it's actually a different word, it's the word that means an old man. Now I leave it to you whether you want to apply this to yourself, whether you consider yourself to be an old man or not, uh, uh, in one sense, you are, to your youth fellowship. To another sense, you're not, to me. So personally, whether you want to see yourself as the old or the young, I'd go with both. The older men, I still see myself as the young man, uh, the older men need to have maturity. They need to be sober-minded. The word just is sober, there's no minded in it. They've got to be sober. Now, of course, the word sober does mean a sobriety of mind, but it's the word sober, and we lose touch with the reality by adding in-minded, as if nobody in first-century Christianity ever got drunk, and no one inside the churches ever got drunk, when in fact it's, it's like the word idolatry. Tim Keller is using the word idolatry to equal sin. Uh, if you keep using the word idolatry like that, you'll lose the meaning of idolatry. Idolatry as covetousness is a metaphor. But if you don't believe in a religious idolatry then idolatry as a metaphor is not going to work for you and the fundamentals of idolatry is not covetousness the fundamentals of idolatry are little statues that people worship their god through or worship as their god that's what idolatry is and you need to remember idolatry is rather than just kind of well sober-minded like that it's about getting drunk and not getting drunk uh, dignified he got to be serious and worthy of respect. I met a couple of Americans the other day, and the young one called me sir, and I said, oh, please call me Philip. And the elder one then kind of uh, politely raised a rebuke with me and said, well, if uh, young men like this call you Philip, how can you ever teach young men to respect you? Uh, Which I kind of... Because Americans are very big on yes, sir, no, ma'am, and all this kind of thing. And it's part of the Bible that you do respect your elders. That's what you should do. Rise at the presence of the elder. It can differ from our culture, but here it is in terms of the elder himself. How do you get people to respect you? It's by being respectable, that's how. Uh, it's a very simple way for women to know how to get men to treat them as ladies. That is by being ladylike. That's very simple. Uh, it's very simple for know how to get people to treat you with respect. That is, be respectable. Be somebody who is dignified, somebody that people will respect. If you keep on acting like the idiot, well, excuse me, they're not going to respect you. That's the character of it. And so the older person should be dignified, serious, worthy of respect, and self controlled. Now, this is a word that comes up over and over again in the pastorals and in Titus, not in the rest of the scriptures. And in this passage, it comes up several times. It's a word which means controlled by wisdom. It's a favourite word here. It's the controlled by your mind because your mind matters. You think about what you do and you live by your thoughts, but it's the wisdom of God. And then you're to have sound, healthy. It's the same word as the teaching has to be sound and healthy. So we talk about people being sound in mind and body, Here it's sound, the older man must be sound in faith in God, in love towards others, and in steadfastness within himself, with patient endurance in suffering. And so you've got to have a healthy life in your faith in God, in your love towards other people, and in yourself, within yourself, in your steadfastness and patient endurance. I mean, it is important. That we are rock-like that we are steady anchors creating security in the community around about us able to be looked up to by those younger than us and to be depended upon by others always able to be relied upon because we are sober-minded we're dignified we're self-controlled we're sound in faith and love and steadfastness that is the rock-like character of the old man of God, and secondly, we turn to the older women. Verse three: Older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Like old men, these are not women elders. Uh, it's a different word. It's presbyteris, but old women. Notice this is not a term of abuse of the old woman, or a put down, as in the case of modern society. The Bible looks up to old women with thankfulness to God for their years and their femininity. And the old woman in this passage has a dignity and a role to play in the community. The older woman is to be reverent in behavior, to act or behave as a holy person. A way fitting prepo comes in again, but fitting for the hieros, fitting for the temple, as if she's in the temple of God, which is then spelled out in a series of negatives: not evil slander, Uh, not the enmity of accusation, accusing people wrongly as the devil does, Diabolos does, nor as a slave to drink. Oh yes, old women can be that, but no, she's not to be like that, but rather positively, the older woman has a task, an important role in teaching. They are to teach what is good. It's uh, it's callo didaskolos. They are to teach what is good in order, hina in the subjunctive, in order to wise up younger women. See, that wise up word is again the sofrinizo word, but it's a verb form this time. The young women need to be governed by wisdom. The older women need to teach what is good in order that the younger women will be governed by wisdom. Teach the good. Now, my sisters who are here with us too, this is what the younger woman needs from you the encouragement and learning of an older woman. Someone who can help them with life's difficult decisions. For few people have so many difficult decisions in life as young wives and young mothers. They have possibly the most difficult life in our community, in our society today. And young women have enormous difficulties of decision making. It is really hard Men, it's pretty simple, really. You know, am I going to play football or not? That's about the level of the scale. But women, there is endless opportunities, possibilities, restrictions and, and difficulties in any choice they're making. It's much more complicated. And my brothers, this is what the younger women need from you as well. They need you to train and teach older women to do the training and teaching of younger women. Do not do it yourself. Has not the role of the minister to be teaching the young wives how to be loving their husbands and loving their children. It's the job of the older women to do it. Talk to the older women about it. Lay before them what the word of God says and let them lay it before the younger women. If we just followed this model, we would be saved a lot of problems. The women would be saved a lot of problems. You as a minister would be saved a lot of mistakes. And the church would be spared of a lot of sexual misdemeanors. If we just do what the Bible says to do, the older women, that's your job. That is your task. And men get older women to do it. The pastor of every young wife is her husband. And within congregational life are the older women. They pastor the younger women. And so we turn thirdly to the younger women, who are not taught directly by Titus, but through the older women, who have charted the difficult waters already and therefore can actually help them. So what are the younger women taught? Notice how it's described in verse 3. They are taught what is good. See that second level intuition comes in. There is a good that you need to be taught. And it is this which will train them, will wise them up to live under wisdom again. The self-controlled word occurs again. So for instance, the adjective this time commencing in verse 5. It is to live the life of wisdom, to live under self-control. So look at what, the good, what is good for the young women. Verse 4. So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Younger women need to learn to love husbands and children. Not love in the Christ sense of laying down your life for your husband and your children, because that is actually the husband's duty in marriage. It's not agape that you have here. Not love in the erotic sense of eros. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but that's not what's here. The term of affection and friendship is used. Philos is the term. And so she's to be a philandrus and a philotechnus. She's to love husband, love children. It's the opposite of misogyny in that regard then, isn't it? That's why it got me pondering. What is the opposite of misogyny? It's one of the opposites of misogyny. Instead of being a woman hater, she is to be a man lover. But it's interesting how the word philandry has moved into a philanderer, which is a very different thing altogether. She is to learn how to love her husband. It may seem strange to our ears to be trained to love husband and children. But not all women find it easy to love their husbands, because only one's married to me and the rest are very difficult men to get on with. And not all women find it automatically easy to love their children. Some 28% of women do suffer from degree of postnatal depression, some of which is in a very extreme form of postnatal depression with a complete rejection and hatred of the child that they have brought to birth. It's not automatic It does need help and there are certain stages and everybody needs help to know how to love their teenage children. And in age and in cultures of arranged marriages, it's important that older women teach younger women how to love their husbands. And at the age of stellar careers and easy divorce, loving an infuriating man and sticking with him and loving children enough to sacrifice your life for them is the opposite of the popular choice. But the younger woman in verse five must learn to be self-controlled. So for adds. I've got to read those words from this text now. I need to move back here in verse five. What are the other words that we have? Here? Agnes, which is pure in a moral, sexually chaste sense. Uh, oikos, you can see both oikos and house and ergo working at home, active and busy. And then agathas, that is good, just as the older women are teaching them to be. Paul returns to the subject of relationship with husband for the younger woman is to submit and to go on submitting to her husband. Notice though, it's to her own idiot, it's to her own husband that she has to uh, submit to at this point, not to husbands in general. Now, I've spoken on the subject of submission elsewhere And you can find out about it because we need to find out about it. Uh, Go to philipjensen.com. There's a chat room on it. There's several essays on it. I actually gave a series of three talks on one convention here on the subject. Submission is one of the world's dirtiest words out there in society. It's all through the scriptures. And in fact, when you stop to ponder it, as I've done through those talks, etc., you'll work out submission is practiced and taught all through society. It's just people don't like the word. But we submit to one another in hundreds and hundreds of different ways. If you don't like the word, we'll find another one. But men, notice it's submit, it's not subjugate. That's a very different thing. That a wife submits to her husband is completely different to a husband subjugating his wife. And you mustn't make that, and that's how most people hear the word submission today. Anyway, philipjensen.com. The stuff is there. All this is said to bring honour to the word of God. For it will not be reviled as it would be if the Christian wife is a, lo- is a bossy, lazy woman, indifferent to her husband and children, impure and foolish. That will bring terrible discredit on your wife. That is now happening. There's a TV series coming, I think, on, I won't tell you where, you can find it yourself. A TV series coming to town in the next uh, little while, next year I think it is, called Good Christian Bitches. It's a follow-up from Sin in the, uh, in the City and a follow-up from uh, the, uh, what's the housewife one that, uh, um, yeah, whatever, Desperate Housewives. It's made by the same people, but it comes out of a Christian woman who, when her divorce, and she is a Christian woman, written uh, the book. Uh, came out of her divorce, went back to her hometown in Texas and found how people gossiped and and slandered and didn't welcome her and love her. And the the gospel message was one thing. The way they treated her was a totally different thing. She wrote it up in a book. The non-Christians have got hold of it. They're turning it into a TV series. And we are now going to have this show called Good Christian Bitches, which in America they changed the title of to Good Christian Bells or something or other. Now at this point the relationship with the world of course comes into the starkest contrast. Right living will honour God's word but will it be honoured by the world that is bent on sin? No, in the short run it won't because the world always follows fashion. But yes in the long term it will because righteousness is God's code, it is what is good and right and also because being God's it is what will work in the long run. For while this description of domestic bliss may have been acceptable in the beginning of the 20th century, by the end of the century it was regularly rejected and even seen as the evil imposition of chauvinistic men destroying the lives of women. But the time is moving and more and more people are now actually taking up the opportunity of marriage and of having children. And whereas in the 80s and 90s, the birth rate of Australia was dropping, 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 in the noughties, it started to climb up again as people are starting to work out that actually family life is very good and children are good and we need to go back there. And this idea of living without is really ridiculous. Marriage and motherhood were not taught as the desirable outcome for young women's lives. And it's still a problem in the schools, that it's a problem in the state schools is awful, but it's exactly the same problem in the church schools. Young women are not encouraged to think that anything domestic is a good outcome for their future life. You can do anything you want to be, you can be anything, you can do anything, but don't want to be a housewife and a mother. The 21st century, the backlash is beginning to be seen as the serious difficulty of training women for wonderful careers without reference to family life has led to an increasingly stressful work-life balance. Bettina Arndt, the local sex therapist and psychologist, noted that only 7% of women in their 20s believe a woman needs a child to be fulfilled. Well, it depends on the question. But she wrote this. What madness is this? It's one thing for our society to support the involuntarily childless and to accept the decisions of those who know they have no desire to be parents. But the trend for so many young women to dismiss the role of children in life satisfaction suggests they have been sold a pup. Yes, motherhood is no guarantee of lifetime happiness and can lead to profound disappointment and despair. But for most people, children are the source of their greatest joy. And she continues, In promoting the importance of women's careers, have we taught young women to see children as merely an irritation, a distraction from the main game? If so, we have done them a huge disservice. That's not a Christian writing, though a Christian should have been writing it. But now the non-Christians are beginning to see it. Or again, in the Sydney Morning Herald, they printed a very telling letter from a young mother. She wrote, In front of my three-unit English class, all girls, I might add, I declared that if feminism was meant to be about giving women choices, then surely the choice to stay home and raise a family full time was valid. Just as valid as aspiring to conquer the corporate world or getting some sought after legal job. For the rest of the year, I was referred to as housewife in the most derogatory terms. Ten years, one law degree, a marriage. And one child later, I am happier now dedicating 100% of my day to my daughter than I ever was at university or at the courtroom bar table. She writes on, the pressure of young intelligent women to pretend they are not interested in motherhood and to pursue a career instead is tremendous. The pressure to return to work and not throw it all away is just as harsh or again, this book came out a couple of years ago by uh, Sylvia Ann Hewlett, Creating a Life, Professional Women and the Quest for Children. She interviews 50 of the most famous professional women in America. And as a result of the interviews, doesn't write the book she expected to write. She writes a book about how miserable they all are. And the main misery point for all of them, lack of children. That's the main misery point. She argues that most successful career women regret deeply not having children, especially as it was a choice they never made. She describes it as a creeping non-choice. And she wants to encourage not only more family-friendly work practice, because she's still very keen for women to be in the workplace and to get ahead, but also young women to be intentional about marriage and children, and not let the opportunity pass them by for the sake of career. None of these three women that I've just mentioned to you are writing from a Christian viewpoint, but all in their different way are pointing to the failure of rejecting God's way taught in Titus 2. What we have here in Titus chapter 2 is God's word to us about the good life. It's what is the good life, what is ultimately the world will recognise as the good life, and we must put our trust in God's word. Let's turn to the fourth group, young men. Likewise, verse 6, urge the young men to be self-controlled. And that's spelt out by the example of Titus in verses 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say of us. The key thing young men must learn is this self-control, this living by wisdom. this This time it's an infinitive verb. So, friend, I... It's the greatest failure of young men that they do not stop and think. They race in without proper risk evaluation and they do not instinctively understand risk, but are driven by their testosterone. They blunder into one foolishness after another. Now, we know that the male brain doesn't develop fully until the mid-twenties. Some, I'm sure, are slow developers. The last part of the brain to develop is the risk intuition area. That is, if you ask young men to stop and think it through, they can usually work out what the risk is. But if they don't have the opportunity to stop and think it through, they generally cannot see the risk that a person in their 30s, 40s, 50s can see instantaneously. That's reflected in the way in which young men drive their motor cars and reflected in the fact that, for years we've known it, not by the brain scans we're presently using, but by the fact that our insurance policies were much higher for men under 25 when driving. It's also, of course, the reason why young men will jump out of trenches and run towards firing guns from the opposite side, although in the World War I there was another reason they jumped out and did it was because if they stayed in there, the officers behind them would shoot them in the back. So there wasn't all that much choice, but if you want someone to be stupid and jump out of a trench and charge towards the opposition, get them to be young. The book of Proverbs is written to a young man. It's written to teach him wisdom so that he might live under wisdom. The best child-training books that are available in this world is the book of Proverbs. The youthful passions that Timothy is to flee from in in 2 Timothy 2 are argumentativeness and quarrelsomeness. So Titus must set an example, model, be the type of good works, demonstrating living the self-controlled, wise lifestyle in all matters of life. You're running a young people's group, the people that you're ministering at younger than you. What is the model that you set them? This is the model. Living a self-controlled, wise life is the model that you are to set them. In his teaching, which is the prime activity of the minister, he is to show integrity. It's the the opposite of corruption. Uh, BDAG says, literally, he's to show integrity incorruptness. He's to show dignity which is the same word as the elder man is to show in verse 2. You must be of serious respect. Some years ago my wife very kindly said to me Philip I've thrown out your jeans. I said well I like my jeans. She said yes but it wasn't dignified the way you wore them. Not many people take the Bible as seriously as my wife does. Whether her judgment on my anatomy and the configuration with genes was right or not, her concern about the dignity of the minister was right. Watch out brothers that you do not judge teachers and preachers by the worldly success of their inflammatory and careless rhetoric. You can draw big crowds and excite much interest, but not necessarily do the work of God. We do not want dull, uninteresting, boring teachers. Please, please, please do not make the word of God boring. We do not want dull, uninteresting, boring teachers, but we do want serious teaching with integrity and dignity because that's how God says to do it. The joker, the inflammatory, argumentative preacher, is not always doing God's work. and He's not always doing it God's way. I'm preaching intensely to myself in this passage, let me assure you. And so we to use healthy speech, again the same word as back in verse 1, the sound, wholesome, health-giving words. Not saying or doing anything that will give the opponents anything to condemn us or speak ill of us, knowing anything against us. And so make it impossible for them to speak ill of us. Young men are so given to rash argumentative rhetoric They still have to learn to control their lives and their tongues. Finally, he turns to slaves. About one third of the Roman Empire were of course slaves, people in a variety of bonded services and different kinds of bonded services and slavery. By the way, I heard on the television last night by a group who was trying to advocate we uh, take social action that at the moment there, I've forgotten what he said, 27 million slaves in the world today, which is the largest number of slaves at any point in human history. So we think slavery has been done away with, but there are millions of slaves in the world today. We need to still do much about it. But to them, Titus is not to teach revolution or to dismantle the institution of slavery, but verse nine, to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. They're to live out their unfortunate situation of life with honesty and submission. That is what accords with sound doctrine. That is what adorns the doctrine of God, our Saviour. The application of this is not so much to workers, but to people in bonded service. Who are they? Apprentices, graduate bonds, people who have entered into obligatory uh, contracts that force you to work for others. The temptation of these situations is exactly what is being addressed in this passage, that rather than doing the work you owe the person they're obliged to what you do is you quarrel and argue you pilfer and you show bad faith instead of getting on with the job and submitting as you should now while we've applied while we've had to pay attention to the content of what the passage tells us about our lives I bid you old and young men and women do what this passage says this is what the bible says to do do it Yet it is in this passage that we can also see the why of Christian behaviour. It's because this teaching is part of the revelation of God to us. It is his word, not just Paul's. It is his word, his doctrine. This is the way of life that reflects what is in accordance with the gospel word of God our Saviour. If you live this way, you will show and adorn the gospel by the way you live. Secondly, because this is good. This is the good teaching of the old, the women, to the young women. This is the model of good works that Titus is to set, especially for the young men. So there's a first appeal, is this is what God says. The second appeal is, this is what is good. And the third, because of the practicalities of living this way. Especially the practicality that we will bring credit rather than discredit, disgrace and disrepute upon the Lord Jesus Christ and upon the word of God. Now some people take this third one too far because as non-Christians, outcomes, pragmatism is the only way in which they've ever thought. And to argue pragmatically alone is not to argue Christianly. Yes, Christians argue pragmatically, but we argue pragmatically under the intuitive rightness of God's world, which is spelled out for us by the word of God. It's because we have all three that we can do the third, but without the top two, the third goes any way you want it to go. And so people look only to outcomes. Uh, the classic argument about this passage is that as the culture has changed, so what one would do to bring credit in one generation will bring discredit in another generation. So what you've got to do is change what you're doing. I'm going to act in such a way that the world will like me and not revile me or like the word of God, not revile the word of God. Therefore, although the Bible says to do X, I'm going to do not X because in the Bible's day, X brought credit, but today it brings discredit, so I'll do not X. Well, amongst other things, this is a failure to understand the weakness of utilitarianism or pragmatism. Utilitarianism alone fails for lots of reasons. It fails to appreciate the long-term effects and judgments. It doesn't take into account what is right. It cannot be proven till it's too late in the day what damage has been done. And it requires omniscience to know the outcome before the event. So I act in this way because I think this is going to be the result, but I don't know that result until it happens. By then it's too late because I've been doing the wrong thing. There is a truth that we act in order to bring about good and not evil. But you have to know what good and evil is, the second level, which comes from the first level. And you have to know the cause and effect of the actions you're taking. This passage before us is where the omniscient God tells us what is good and what will be the outcomes of the behaviours that we will adopt To detach this behaviour from what is good in God's word and have only the outcome motive of bringing no discredit upon the word of God will open us up to hypocrisy and deceit. For we will always be trying to cover up scandals at all costs. If the one thing that matters is not causing offence to the world around about us, well then, every time something's wrong in the church, what will we do? Hide it, cover it, change it. But what is that's wrong in the church? That which the world doesn't like. Well, the world doesn't like evangelism, does it? So let's hide it, let's cover it, let's not have anything to do with it. Let's say we don't believe in proselytism. We don't believe in seeing people change their faith and turn from unbelief to belief in God. We don't believe in... Because then we won't be offensive to the community around about us. It's a nonsense to have this as the only thing. You see, the description of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says, I seek to please everybody in every way in order that by, some, by all means they may be saved, comes in the context of doing everything for the glory of God. Without that overriding context, well, no, he can't do everything in every way to please every person they may be saved. He's not going to gamble with the gamblers. He's not going to visit the prostitutes with the, with the sex addicts. He's not going to be drunk with the drunkards in order to win them. Because you can't do those things to the glory of God. What we have in Titus 2 are God's commands and God's word which teaches us what is good. The world and its cultures have views of the good life that are always opposed to this way of living. We cannot live in ways that satisfy the world's view of the good. Otherwise we've got nothing to say to the world but we're following like sheep every whim of sin and corruption. What God is saying is that if we live rightly, his way, we will silence the world, for though we are different, they actually will have nothing wrong to say about us. But there is a fourth reason. A fourth reason, if you're forgetting my numbering, the third reason was, the first reason was, the first reason was the revelation of God, the second reason was that it's the good, the third reason was because of the practicalities, and the fourth reason is the gospel of grace. Because the reason to live this way is explained in the next paragraph. Notice verse eleven starts with the word gar for because Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this age as we await for the appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. And that is the good doctrine, the healthy doctrine, that this teaching accords with. But that's the next Bible study because I was only going to go verse 10 today. So verse 11, you have to turn up again if you want to hear the other fourth motivation, which is the really big motivation for living the way God wants us to live.